From Vine Pairs New York City headquarters, I'm Adam Teeter. And I'm Joanna Sherino. And in Seattle, Washington, I'm Zach Trabal. And it's the Monday Vine Pair Podcast. Zach, what you been drinking, man? I'm back, baby. Might as well. Might as well. <laughs> oh, he's back to drinking. Yeah, I know. I saw. I just. I wasn't. I wasn't gonna. I wasn't gonna acknowledge it. That's nice I just for you. Be like, what's you been drinking, and hope he didn't say coffee. <laughs> uh huh. Joanna, I I, I want to know when it's your turn. I want. I, I have. I want to know what you're most looking forward to drinking. But okay. I will answer Adam's question first. So, uh, my return to alcohol consumption was. Uh, I, I had a. A drink that I've made a couple of times uh, during January for my wife that I've been meaning to try for myself, and I'm calling it. It may already exist. It's possible that I'm that I saw this somewhere and I've just forgotten about it. But I'm calling it. I think the Golden Negroni is kind of where I'm going with the name. Mm. Possibly like the the Amber Negroni, but I think it's more gold in color, and it's uh, <laughs> equal parts of a um, of gin, Suze, and. Uh, Cokie Americano Bianco. So like a, you know, a, a white vermouth. So not a dry vermouth exactly. It's got a little sweetness. Um, but the Suze is like a, another bitter liqueur that's, again, a kind of a almost neon yellow color. Uh, it's, 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 I'm not sure quite where its color comes from. It is very wait, striking. Wait, what's our white, what's our white Negroni though? Isn't that a white Negroni? Oh, I'm, no, I, my brain is not working. I said Suze, but I actually meant Strega. Oh, there you go. Yes. So no, sorry. Strega. Uh, Gin Strega, which is an Italian herbal liqueur that is like kind of a yellow, like kind of like yellow chartreuse and uh, cookie Americano. Cookie. Uh, no, yes, sorry. Confusing myself over my Italian liqueurs. Um, you can tell I'm out of practice, apparently. <laughs> it was uh, it was tasty. And then uh, my cousin came over last night for dinner. He brought some, who's a wine salesman, and he brought over some open bottles of Hetzametna Rosso, a little bit of, uh, of just uh, Village Burgundy. Uh, some champagne it was nice you know tasted a few things uh remembered that after not drinking for a month i need to take it easy because uh yeah it definitely was a little rough <laughs> uh the 3 a.m wake up with my daughter but uh anyhow yeah it's nice to be back I'm gonna be next time we talk i'll be in hawaii so uh you know i'll have some conversations to say about that uh about drinking there That's maybe exciting. i've had something something more tropical and uh yeah, how how long are you gonna be in hawaii we are gonna be there for 10 days somehow um, I have no idea how this is oh. going to go. It's our first trip with the kids, uh, with both of them. It's a long flight. It's a long time to be. How long is the flight for you? It's like a five-hour flight. You know, I've never been. Me neither. I feel like it's so much easier for y'all West Coasters. It is. Yeah, I've never been. But you have you have not been either, Zach. No, I've been. I've been to Hawaii, but I was. A oh, kid. you've been. Okay. Yeah. But like Hawaii to the is to the West Coast what like the Caribbean is to the East Coast, right? Like it's the place you go. Except obviously the Caribbean is closer for even in New York, but it's like the tropical place you can go that is far enough away that it feels really special, but is not as like it's a lot easier obviously to go to Hawaii from Seattle or California or whatever than it is on the East Coast, and that uh, I think makes a big difference. It is also like I was looking at a globe with my son because he wanted to see where we're going, and I was like, it is actually way the fuck out there in the Pacific. I had kind of forgotten. Like just in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> It, it also like I forget too, because the Pacific like is the water cold or is it is it warm? No. Like is the, the Caribbean, you know, the whole thing is that it's very warm water. Right, right. Yeah, you have a you similar. Know? I mean, you're, you're pretty close to the equator, so the water is is generally quite warm. And I believe you have a sort of like a Pacific current of sorts that not quite the Gulf current, but uh, similar kind of deal that that brings warm water in. It is. I have again. I was like 12 the last time I was there, uh-huh. but I went swimming 
in the ocean with like, you know, I was very comfortable. So nice. Ah, looking forward to it. Anyhow, Joanna, speaking of looking forward to it, what are you yes. most excited to drink when you when you are uh, able to again? I'm most excited to have a full serving of alcohol. Uh, Annie, <laughs> Annie, that's it. No, no, I because I because I've had sips and, and tastes here and there over the course of my pregnancy, but I think you know there have been a lot of times recently where I'm like, oh, I really wish I could just have a bourbon right now, um, or just a glass of champagne would be really nice. Uh, but I think in terms of a cocktail, I'd like to have a Manhattan on the rocks. That might be the first thing nice. I drink when I get home. Nice. I love that. Mm-hmm. I love that for you. Yeah. <laughs> I love that for me too. <laughs> no champagne in the hospital room? Yeah, that too. Do you know that's a thing at certain <laughs> hospitals? That what? So at Greenwich Hospital, where my friend Ryan was the head anesthesiologist for a while before he couldn't take it anymore, <laughs> the, the way that they would get doctors to to go there is especially from the Upper East Side is they offer the mother after birth, the packages, a steak dinner with a bottle of champagne. <laughs> that's amazing. And I was just like, that's ridiculous. I mean, apparently it's very expensive hospital, but he was like, yeah, man. Like, so you would have moms from the Upper East Side that would come up to deliver in Greenwich because you yep. get the steak dinner with the bottle of champagne and like the private room and like all that stuff. Mm-hmm. And I was like, whoa, Oof, yeah, that's a lot. We brought sparkling yeah. wine in with both our kids. That's nice. I should ask Naomi if she wants to do that. We were not technically supposed to, but that didn't stop us. Yeah, I was like, well, they're not going to kick like... you out of the hotel, out of the hospital. So, like, let whatever. <laughs> I love it, but I feel like I'll have to take it easy. Yeah, like you Oof. said, Zach. This has been a lot. <laughs> yeah. Adam, what about you? Okay, so well, we had our staff party last week. Yes. So I uh, did have some sips of things there. Yeah. So we, <laughs> so Gage and Tolner, uh, obviously known for their classic cocktails. I had uh, the three cocktails I had were the um, perfect martini. Yeah. The Vesper. No, the Gim. Sorry, the Gibson. The Gibson. Oh, I always get them confused. The Gibson and uh, the daiquiri. And then we also had at the end of the meal, everyone got a round of grasshoppers, which was delicious. Like mini grasshoppers, kind of. They no. Came, <laughs> they came out like half wine glasses, I think. I thought that was a cocktail. It glass. was it was a full cocktail. They were very glass. delicious. They were delicious. They're like literally thin like liquid thin mints. Mm-hmm. So that was good. And then um this past like this week I went out to dinner at uh Corner Bar, which is Ignacio Mato? Yes. Like new restaurant in a very trendy hotel in the Lower East Side. I'm not going to call it the neighborhood that people are trying to call it. Yeah, uh, it's like Chinatown? It's, it, it's, chi- it's Lower East Side Chinatown. It yeah. is not a square with the first name that rhymes with times. It's just not. <laughs> uh, it's su- super annoying. Um, and first of all, the place was fucking fire. Like just amazing, amazing restaurant. And uh, had a bottle of Elvio Cogno Barbaresco with the Your main shave. Course. That was the best. <laughs> with the main course. But I will say that, like, also, huge wine list to, to sort of piggyback on what we've talked about from last week. Oh, yeah. Affordable? Extremely expensive. I mean, <laughs> I would say the majority of the bottles average was 150 And... Like, there were a few bottles in the under $100 range, not a lot. Mm-hmm. And then, like, yeah, I mean, they, they, it was an expensive list. And that is a trend in the majority of New York. 
and the glasses were all 20 and over and yeah. the cocktails were 18. So this is a very hot restaurant in New York City right now. And guess who is probably not buying bottles of wine there? Millennials. <laughs> all the, all the yeah, people, people who, like, who are going because they want to go because <laughs> everyone's covering it and because, you know, it's they still can afford the food. But the, it was I was pretty blown away by how expensive the mm. the wine list was that. But that's the trend here. Like it's just getting more and more and more expensive. And it just you don't find these sections. It's funny because like we are wine people, right? All of us love wine. We know there are regions of the country. I mean, of the world that make these wines that I feel like a lot of people in the wine industry right now, this is a little tangent we're going to go on on this podcast, <laughs> pretend don't exist. Right, Zach? Like, it feels yeah. like everyone discovered Beaujolais and decided that was cool and that was worth it to be the affordable, like, region. It's not the only one. <laughs> and now no. that Beaujolais is super expensive, it's like, I don't get why there's not more Spanish wines on these lists or why there's not more wines from certain areas of Greece or certain the Pelavergas and stuff from Italy, like they're not there. I don't yeah. understand. And instead it's like lots of Burgundy, huge sections of Burgundy everywhere. And then like there's a decent amount of, of Etna now on a lot of lists that I've seen in New York. Mm -hmm. And then they'll have like the Barolos, Barbarescos, Super Tuscans, Brunellos, Bordeaux. Like it's, it's really interesting. Mm -hmm. And I don't know what's happening there at all. I really don't. It's just, it's a margins thing, right? I, I, I think it has to be. Yeah. But it's also, I think it's this weird thing where like the attitude seems to be like, oh, you want to drink wine? Well, fuck you. You're going to pay for it. And it's like yeah. very strange. Again, I, I this is too big of a tangent, I think. Otherwise, it's going to take yeah. over the episode. But I just want to say one more time, like this is such a fucking problem. And like it, it's a problem for restaurants kind of, but it's like the wine industry needs to like start having frank conversations with these kinds of restaurants about like, okay, great. You want to put our wine on your list, but it, why is this wine that is wholesaling to you for $27? Why is it $130 on your list? Like, what the fuck are we doing here? Like, this is not good for anyone. And yeah. yet, like, it just seems to be a conversation that is not happening. And, and again, like I said, the attitude seems to be like punitive to people who like to drink wine. I don't I, I, yeah it's like when when you start charging more for a glass of like pretty innocuous wine by the glass and your like custom cocktails are less expensive like something has gone wrong and and we'll talk more about it on a future episode but something yeah. has gone terribly wrong <laughs> yeah totally <laughs> so this episode what we want to talk about is just in the vein of like what's happening in the world economy etc uh, I thought what would be really interesting to discuss is because it's being discussed in a lot of places, sort of the the now seen effects of the mirage of COVID. And I'm not saying that COVID was a mirage, right? What I, I'm not saying that what we all went through was not real. What I'm saying is there were a lot of behaviors that happened because of COVID that caused a lot of money to rush in, and those behaviors did not stick, and. The biggest thing that the biggest after effect I think we're seeing is DTC and DTC in all of its forms, right? Not just alcohol. We're seeing this in, you know, on demand delivery of 
household items in all the DTC startups. The, that, go, the go puffs. Yeah, right? that, are, that are all kind of struggling right now, that all expanded massively, that are why tech is laying off so many workers, uh, that is why so many of these premium mediocre, for those of you that are regular listeners to the pod, know what that <laughs> is, uh, brands are, are laying off people and going out of business. Because, you know, I think what everyone forgets is that we are, we were at a time in our, you know, culture where everyone was really scared to go out of the house. Yeah. So, of course, you were more than willing to buy things online and have it delivered because it felt safer to do that and have it dropped at your door than to brave going out into the world and trying to, you know, get through Target. Safely, yeah. Right? But I think what we are seeing is that just because something can be DTC doesn't mean that it should be DTC. And I think that that's especially true for alcohol. And what, you know, what we've always sort of talked about is that, like, there's this really interesting thing about alcohol where one of the most, like, one of the things people like is shopping for it in real, in real life, right? Mm -hmm. They like going into the store and for all of the problems we say exist, people are intimidated. They don't want to talk to the, you know, to the, the person on the floor. They don't want to feel like they're being judged. Like they all still go and buy alcohol IRL. Mm -hmm. And a lot of that is because for as many issues as we say there are in the three tier system, and there are a lot of them, mm -hmm. there's a lot of, it is very easy to find alcohol in our country. It is very easy to buy it. It is, it is very well distributed. And maybe not the crazy grower champagnes, right? But for the most part, it's very easy to find. And so the idea that everyone's going to change those behaviors and all of a sudden start buying, like, the bourbon you can find everywhere, right, with maybe the letter J and the letter B in its names, <laughs> online is not going to happen, and you see a lot of companies now pulling back. But I think that, like, that's something that w that probably needs to happen a little bit faster in our world is, like, we need to start thinking more about how the average consumer behaves because the average consumer doesn't, like, go on, like, see a commercial and then go online and immediately buy the liquor or immediately buy the wine. Yeah. Like, they walk around, they, you know, they, 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 they encounter the brand multiple times through marketing, you know, reading about it, maybe seeing it at a restaurant, whatever. And then the next time they're in the wine shop, they maybe buy that brand. That's how most people actually buy alcohol. And I think that, like, we need to try to, again, come out of that cloud faster so that we can adapt to what's happening in the economy right now. Because there's, I feel like there's still just this huge concentration on direct-to-consumer that is never going to materialize for alcohol. Yeah, I mean, we we have a few examples of it really not working, yeah. <laughs> right? We were talking about this for House yep. um, and not being able to pivot outside of direct-to-consumer in a way that they could survive. Um, but yeah, I think that that seems to me to be the most traditional way that people are buying alcohol is in real life. Yeah. Well, and I think you have to remember, too, that not only were you talking about a, a mindset and a reality where people were afraid to go out the front door and certainly afraid to go into a store with other people, but also a reality where between the direct effects of COVID and some of the sort of knock-on effects, people – there was a lot of, like, kind of panic buying, right? People were like, I yep. don't know if I'm going to be able to buy the aforementioned whiskey that has a J and a B in its name or whatever. Like, what if the stores are out of everything? And, like – People stocked up, people 
at some point kind of, yeah, maybe we're like, I'm going to just reorder online, etc. And then like, you know, things didn't go all the way back to normal right away. But, you know, people have adjusted, they've adapted, they've returned to certain pre-COVID behaviors in a lot of really meaningful ways. And the other thing is like, a lot of the DTC specific brands were not really able to make, I think, a, a long-term consistent kind of argument for themselves because the other thing we see in alcohol that I think is true in a lot of other areas where DTC has failed and and is not true in the areas where it has succeeded is that people's preferences and, and desires change and people don't like mm-hmm. being tied to getting the same product or the same set of products over and over again. I mean, I think you think about like another, another company that's failed recently or at least l- largely failed like Wink. Part of the problem is like, in the end, people kind of get sick of the same wine over and over. Yep. Yeah, that's a good point. Even if some people want to drink mostly the same kinds of wine. And yes, there are definitely people out there who are like super brand loyal, maybe to even a specific bottle. But a lot of people who drink wine on the regular want to drink a few different kinds of wine, even if they fall into the same broad category. And they might decide what they're buying based on what's on sale at the grocery store or what has the coolest label or what they saw an ad for or what their friend recommended or whatever. But they're not going to just buy the same bottle over and over again. And DTC services kind of rely on a consistent subscription model to survive. And, you know, I think there are perhaps some of the areas where they can either offer – DTC broadly can offer either enough variety, like perhaps some of the food services, you know, the meal services can offer enough variety for people. Although I think even those, you know, you see people eventually kind of churn through and they're just like, I don't – you know, yeah, it was kind of nice for a while, but like – do I want the sesame chicken for the 15th time? Maybe I don't. Maybe I want to try my own thing or maybe I want, yeah. you know, a, a different food. But certainly wine, spirits, beer, they can't offer that kind of variety for the most part in the DTC format. And without variety, people are going to turn to their traditional outlets, right? They're going to turn to the grocery store. They're going to turn to the wine shop, the liquor store, et cetera, because that's where they can find, as we mentioned, the very well distributed range of products that are available in every corner of the country. Yeah, I think also a lot of people realize after a while that the those services are expensive. Yes, um, and <laughs> it actually well, once you get through the promo you know, period, right? Like once you get through exactly the first cheap order or two. Yeah, and you you've like subscribed now, and you're like, oh, this is very expensive every month. I, I would also say like some of the other more successful and. Honestly, I'm actually not sure. Like, how how are the DTC like mattress companies doing? Because a lot of them have opened a lot of stores, and now there's a lot of competition, and so they they all have you know really lowered their prices like crazy because right. you know there's it, it it is again this is another thing that's like it is hard to say to a consumer please buy this without lying on it right but I but I also what I was going to say is that I feel. Like we saw a lot of success with those types of companies in the beginning because they're they're one time purchases, yeah. right? Like cookware, um, mattresses. Like I feel like Casper was so successful at first because it was like you, it's a very convenient way to get them, yeah. you know, a mattress one time, um, but you don't have to go back over and over again, like you would with alcohol. And I, I think the thing too with alcohol is. You can kind of see like where DTC is failing with alcohol in the same way of so there's this so I don't know if either of you are familiar with Stitch Fix. Yeah. So um Stitch Fix's stock is tanking. It, it's rental? So no. So like what it it's originally curated clothing. Yeah, right? what it originally yeah. was was curated clothing for women who didn't like shopping. Right. 
So it was like you sort of filled out a questionnaire and then a stylist met with you and they would kind of send you a box of curated clothes. clothes. Right. <laughs> I don't look. I love to shop. Mm-hmm. I really do. You do. Oh, I love to shop. <laughs> Ask Naomi. I, I always <laughs> Adam's have. very fashion forward. Yeah. And I, li- I like to like go in the into the store and like look at the clothes and like <laughs> it's fun for me. And I like to browse. I mean, I'd always buy something, but I've I've always been into it. Like. I I think fashion's fun, and I think going to the wine store is fun. That there's, but I get there are people that don't like those things. That experience. They yeah. don't like commerce. I love being marketed to. Like market to me, it's <laughs> awesome. So Stitch Fix was was going to be that, right? That was the solve. It was for a very specific person, and then in COVID, they like launched all these other businesses. Like they were going to just do direct to consumer. You could just buy the clothes. Also, they were going to launch stitch fix for men, even though there was no research that proved that the same large audience of men were out there who wanted to have to have their clothes picked for them and a stylist, everyone like, but they launched all these things and they tried to be all things for all people. And I think that's the same thing that you you unfortunately see happening with a lot of the stuff that's happening DTC and alcohol is this idea that like, well, we can sell all of our alcohol on direct-to-consumer. Like, we can sell our low-end and our high-end. When, when most research pro- proves that the only DTC that works in alcohol is high-end expensive shit that's hard to get. Mm. Like, the winery only releases, the bourbons that you would have to search for amongst many, you know, stores to find, the, you know, the really rare single malt scotches and the super high-end wines. Like, that's where DTC really works because that is actually convenient. Yeah, and you're not going to pay shipping on the thing you can get at the liquor store. And you're willing to wait for it. Yeah. Whereas, again... You know, the data that everyone always cites is most, I think what it is, it's over 70% or some crazy number like this, right, of people consume the bottle of alcohol within 24 hours of purchasing it. Whether that's opening it and, and pouring just one shot or pouring through the whole beer or the, the wine, et cetera. So who is waiting two days or more for that wine.com order? Nobody. Right. Which is why wine doc, you know, like wine.com has had its own issues. Like, I think that's something that we just fail to think about when we think, well, everyone buys everything else this way. Why would they not buy alcohol? Because the alcohol use patterns are different than, for example, waiting two days for your next toilet paper delivery. As long as you know you have enough toilet paper waiting for you, <laughs> you know, you don't want to run out. That's a real emergency. Those are the things. I come back to this over and over again. There there are other reasons besides the thing I'm going to cite, but there's a reason why the biggest like direct to consumer, if you want to call it that retailer in the world, Amazon, doesn't sell much booze, right? Yeah. Like they know their that people's purchase decisions don't fit with their format. And you yep. know, that goes to mm-hmm. the broader sort of like what happened to Amazon Fresh and why they bought like Whole Foods instead. And like, we're like, okay, we want to sell people food, but we know that the kind of grocery delivery model is also tricky for the same reason, right? People make a lot of decisions in the moment when they're in the space where the thing is for sale, they can pick it up, look at it, hold it, you know, whatever. And in the case of produce, like, you know, scratch it or smell it or whatever. And it's really difficult to get them to shift that kind of purchasing online. And 
beverage alcohol is, I think, kind of in that same class, right? As you said, people don't plan ahead. People don't go online and say, oh, what am I going to want to drink in four days? Let me plan. Like, that's just not how people function or not how most people function. Obviously, there are people who behave that way. There are people who go on wine.com looking for a specific bottle of wine because they want to have it in seven days. Fantastic. But that's not a big right. market. And it's very strange to me that, you know, <laughs> there seemed to be a lot of pie-eyed optimism about the potential for DTC everything in what we all had to acknowledge was like presumably going to be temporary circumstances. Now, granted, they weren't like as temporary as any of us would have liked, but, you know, you, you can't really look at what was happening in June of 2020 and be like, ah, yes, this is where the future is. I mean, we've maintained some of those things and some of those things have informed what beverage alcohol will look like going forward but yeah they're they're they're, if the argument for the dtc brand or model wasn't strong in february of 2020 or it was non-existent i think it's hard to make it now things didn't change enough through covid i agree to make those businesses super viable but are there a lot of dtc brands or even ones like trying to pursue dtc now i feel like i'm not aware of them maybe somewhat alcohol yeah oh yeah I think there's a lot of people who are still talking, I mean, at least who are still talking about it, right? And who are still thinking or who are still saying, you know, we want to push this via Drizzly or we want, you know, ad campaigns that are all, that are all, that are DTC focused. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, you still hear about it a lot or, you know, talking about investing in online retail channels, things like that. Absolutely. And like RTDs and things like that without distribution. Exactly. Like, I mean, there's look, there's an RTD that launched an RTS that launched this this past week that we got the press release for that said we're already in 42 states and you can order. us. So I'm like, who is ordering via Corota RTS like when they've <laughs> never heard of the restaurant in this, in this RTS cocktail brand like tomorrow? It, it, yeah. But that's but it allows them to say they're national immediately, and there, there's a lot there's a lot of this. Mm. And look, that might not actually be that company's ultimate goal. Right. The ultimate goal might be, I don't know, on premise sales, but whatever that has its own issues. But I think this this idea is still pretty prevalent. And like the one thing I was, I was talking to uh, a, a head of media at one of the larger alcohol companies, and he was saying to me like in. Every single one of the brands he works with, you know, in the company, they say like, we want to do, you know, we want to do content advertising that pushes to sales. And he's like, okay, we can do that, but it's going to cost four times as much as it would to just build the brand through, through great marketing, Mm. right? Because we're going to have to pay for conversions that are massive because most people who buy alcohol don't immediately buy alcohol upon seeing an ad for it. That ad reinforces the brand to them over and over and over again until they happen to be standing in the shop and they remember the alcohol or the region or reading a story on VinePair about how amazing, you know, Schiava is as an as as an alternative to Schiava, Schiava, Zach, Schiava, Schiava. Yeah, Schiava. Schiava. Yeah. Mm. How amazing Schiava is, you know, as an alternative to Beaujolais. And then they buy that when they finally are in the shop, when they ask someone if it's there and they don't like read that, that article and then say, cool, let me transact right now. Mm. And, but that's what I think people want with D that's what we want to believe 
can happen with DTC and especially mm-hmm. with alcohol, I don't think it ever is, but those conversations for sure are still happening because in COVID there did feel like there was an immediacy because people were just trying to buy, as, as Zach said, people were trying to buy everything as fast as possible because right. there was a fear things would run out. It's like, how am I going to get through this? Like I need cases upon cases upon cases of wine. And most of that slowed down because people realized that they could go back to their normal way of consumption. And I think that's, you know, what we have to think about moving forward is as we're entering this like 2023 world, how do we talk to consumers in their normal way of consumption and not in this way that we think has changed the game when actually if you look at all of the fallout now happening is proof that it's it hasn't, right? We're not going to have that permanent, right? We're going to go back to the way things were and yeah, that's fine. Well, for wine specifically, wine DTC sales volumes have decreased massively. Yeah, dramatically since in 2022, even though we saw extreme growth in 2020 and 2021. Yep. Yeah. So if you are a DTC consumer, let us know. Hit us up at podcast.vinepair.com. If uh, you have other thoughts, also share them with us. Uh, and if you've got questions you want us to try to address in the future, please let us know. I'll talk to you both on Friday. Sounds great. Thanks so much for listening to the Vine Pair Podcast, the flagship podcast of the Vine Pair Podcast Network. If you love listening to this show, or even if you don't, but I really hope that you do, as much as we really do love making it, then please drop us a review or a rating wherever it is that you get your podcast, whether that be iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, anywhere. If you are listening to this on a device right now through an app, however you got this audio, please drop a review. It really helps everyone else discover the show. And now for some totally awesome credits. So the Vine Pair podcast is recorded in our New York City headquarters and in Seattle, Washington in Zach Jabal's basement. It is recorded by Zach, mastered and produced by Zach. He loves all the credit. Keep giving it to him. Drop his name in the reviews. He's going to love hearing how much you love him. It is also recorded in New York City by our tastings director, Keith Beavers, who is the managing director of the entire Vine Pair podcast network. I'd also love to give a shout out to our editor-in-chief, Joanna Sherino, who joins us on every single podcast as our third and most important host. Thank you as well to the entire VinePair staff and everyone who's been involved in making VinePair as special as it's become. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next week.